The following program is brought to you by Blood, Sweat, Tears, and listeners like you. To support this show and all of the shows within Twib Nation, consider becoming a subscriber of our pay service, The Twibularity, at twib.me forward slash subscribe. That's twib.me forward slash subscribe. Or you can give a one-time donation at donate.twib.me. That's donate.twib.me. We've all learned how important media is and who tells our stories. Help us be the media that you want to hear and that the media is afraid to hear. It's kind of hard to listen to yourself become irrelevant. You are now listening to Twib FM. Real talk, real awesome. Finally, I'm finally free. Finally, I'm finally me. Finally, I'm finally free. Finally, I'm finally me. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. Thank you for tuning in. Tonight, we have a panel of authors that are going to talk about their respective novels. We're going to get into the publishing industry and really what it takes to be a unique writer um, in this business. So if you're listening live, uh, feel free to participate with us via Twitter. The hashtag is BGN Podcast. That puts you into the live feed with all the other listeners uh, where you can engage. You can ask questions of the guests. Feel free to leave comments. Uh, we will be more than happy to address some of those on the air. You can also call in if you'd like. If you've got any questions, the studio number is 718-404-9320. Again, it's 718-404-9320. Um, and our guests on our show tonight for our author's panel is authors Theolonius Legend, Tiffany Davis, and Kevin Wayne Williams. So before I introduce them, I just want to make a few announcements. So we have a giveaway that's running right now on BlackGirlNerds.com. If you're a fan of Penny Dreadful, which premieres tonight at 10 o'clock Eastern Time on Showtime, uh, check out the website. We're giving away art books and posters, um, a total of five art books. And with each art book, you'll get a promo poster from the series um, just for entering in. Uh, just use the Rafflecopter widget on um, the blog post, and we'll tweet those out throughout the show. Um, but it's Dimdred's Giveaway is the name of the giveaway, using that hashtag. And then join us tonight at 10 o'clock to live tweet that. We're also live tweeting Game of Thrones tonight. Dim Thrones is the hashtag for that. Um, and uh, hopefully by the end of the week, we'll be um, reaching out to all of you to know who the winners are and get those packages sent to you right away. And... If you have not done so already on the website, there are several ways to give and also just be able to support us financially. We always appreciate your support. First and foremost, you can utilize the donate button, um, which is the PayPal button on the website to donate. And also we have merchandise through zazzle.com forward slash blurredgasm. And there's T-shirts and coffee mugs and a whole bunch of uh, fun swag that you can rock when you go to your next convention. And finally, we have blog ads. Blog ads allows you, um, the seller, uh, if you have a product or service that you really want to promote and you don't really have an audience yet to capture it, you can go ahead and use that right sidebar on the site and uh, use blog ads. 
As a matter of fact, two of our three authors tonight has utilized uh, blog ads through blackgirlnerds.com. So guys, feel free to share uh, your experiences with that platform. So thank you guys for all of the support that you've given us so far. And uh, it really does go a long way. So really appreciate that. All right. So I am going to introduce each of our guests. And then we're going to get into our questions about writing and publishing and creating stories. So first with Theolonius Legend. Theolonius is an IT professional by day, but by night he uses his pen and pad as a canvas to explore questions of race, identity, privilege, and class in a science fiction setting. An eclectic reader with a fondness for the classics and first-generation hip-hop snob. He's a Philadelphia Eagles football fanatic, and he also enjoys MMA from the safety of his own couch. On the weekends, you can find him drinking, wine, rock climbing, fishing, or being an unpaid chauffeur for his daughter's activities. He's also a snark purveyor and has been making it funny since it was called The Dozens. His first book is titled Sins of the Father. It's a funny coming-of-age sci-fi joint about black girls with superpowers. Tiffany M. Davis is the author of the Bastille Family Chronicles fiction series, as well as the Sebastian Scott suspense series, which she writes under the name TMD. A graduate of Georgetown University, Tiffany resides in the Atlanta area. She's excited for the upcoming release of the Bastille Family Chronicles Dominic, which is the second book in the BFC series and tells the story of Dominic Bastille, a transplant surgeon and one of the youngest Bastille siblings, along with his twin sister, Nicolette. Dominic relocates for a new job opportunity, but can't seem to shake his old baggage with women, especially his ex-fiancee, Cicely Porter. When he hires game developer Taryn McIntyre to help him with a research project, sparks fly, but Dominic may end up trusting the wrong person. And finally, Kevin Wayne Williams is an engineer for much of his life, He rose through the ranks and eventually became an executive in Silicon Valley. In 2004, tired of it all, he fled the country with his wife, Kathy, and opened a hotel in Bonaire, a small Dutch island north of Venezuela. In 2009, for reasons he still doesn't quite understand, they returned back to the United States, and he has since resumed his engineering career but writes novels to help dull the pain. His first novel, Everything I Know About Zombies I Learned in Kindergarten, is a finalist for Indie Fab Book of the Year in both the horror and multicultural categories. Thank you all for coming on the show tonight. Thank you for having yeah. me. Awesome. Impressive, impressive bios. Um, again, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about your experiences and each of your books, and I'm ready to just kind of get into the meat of um, what each of your stories are about. So I'm going to start um, in the order that I read your bios, and we'll start with Theolonius. Um, your book, um, as I mentioned in your bio, it's called The Sins of the Father. Why don't you give us a brief summary of what it's about? It's the uh, typical superhero journey, uh, but what's unique about this situation or this book is that the protagonists are uh, young girls of color, um, and they have unique situations that are peculiar to young girls of color, whether it being um, how they view themselves as far as beauty compared to their uh, peers, uh, their struggles with uh, natural hair, going natural, not going natural, and trying to fit in in uh, uh, some time uh, environment where not everybody looks like them or recognizes them for their talent. So uh, it was a fun ride. 
Uh, hopefully it's a fun read and it was uh, uh, a very, very, very um, unusual journey for a first-time author. What inspired you to write this novel and what led you to get into the publishing industry? Well, I've always wanted to be a, a writer. Um, I was a voracious reader. I read everything. Um, like my bio says, I'm, I'm really fond of the classics. But also I'm a, a science fiction and a fantasy nerd, as anybody that follows my tweets might know. Uh, but the catalyst for writing this genre were, was my daughters. Uh, like their father, they're both nerds, and like their father, they like science fiction, uh, fantasy, Harry Potter, The Hunger Games. Uh, but none of the heroes look like them. So I was like, this is all the impetus I need to write a book where somebody like, that looks like my daughter gets to be the hero and save the day and gets away at the end. Uh, I like Harry Potter or Spider-Man or something like that. So, um, that's how I started, why I started. And as far as the uh, publishing industry, my, my few connections with the published industry hasn't been, ha have not been positive. Um, I was told that nobody would be able to relate to middle class girls with superpowers. So I might want to, you know, think of another genre or, or think of another protagonist. Mm -hmm. So I decided to self publish and I've been pleased with the results. Uh, let me move on to Kevin. Uh, your book is called Everything I Know About Zombies I Learned in Kindergarten. Can you give us a brief summary of what this book is about? Well, it's a horror novel about Letitia Johnson. And Letitia is a little nine-year-old girl living in Mott Haven, which is a part of the South Bronx. Um, and when the, you know, when the apocalypse hits, she grabs her little sister, her little sister's kindergarten class, and hides them as best as she can. But the problem is that she does it too well. When the time, you know, when it's time that they all decide to stop hiding, they come out into the Bronx and the adults have all evacuated. They've all run away. Um, yeah, you know, I call it sometimes a, a horror story for parents because it's really every parent's worst nightmare. You're dead. Your kid is still trying to survive and there's everything out there that's trying to kill her. Wow. What what inspired you to write this novel? Well, I'm, I've always been a zombie fan. I, um, you know, for Mother's Day, I'm going to send my mother probably a copy of Ed and His Dead Mother because it's one of my favorite zombie films. But, you know, I'm watching The, the Walking Dead, and what I'm realizing is, is that, you know, this is Georgia, supposedly. And... You couldn't get a Georgia as pale as they show on that show the first season unless you were taking all the black people and feeding them to the zombies to let the whites get away. Mm. Uh, I didn't think that even Merle was going to stoop that low. Uh, but you had just T-Dog, the one character, looks like a Mack truck, and he's the only black character in the show. You also got the kids, and the kids in that show just... Well, to say that they sucked is to put it too mild. Um, they, yeah, they have, they have these. Tell us how you really feel. <laughs> they, they have these kids that are just props. I mean, I remember being nine 
when I was nine, I did things. I had a personality. I interacted with people. I got in trouble. Um, I did all kinds of stuff. And when you get into The Walking Dead, especially that first season, well, not, no, with the kids, it's still, um, you know, what does Carl do? Carl gets lost every time something bad happens. And that way, Lori could lean out the window and shout, where's Carl? That's what he was for. That's all he did. Sophie, you know, she spent, they spent an entire season, Sophia, I'm sorry. They spent an entire season about Sophia getting lost. And that was her contribution to the story, was she got lost. Um, That's not what kids are like. Kids are people. Now, they're not adults, and that's something I had to be very careful when I was writing the book, was a nine-year-old is not an adult. They don't think like we do. They haven't got the experience they need to get by. But there are more than just props that get lost. And I wanted to tell those kind of stories about somebody, uh, you know, a realistic kid and a realistic black child facing a situation like that. Um, I guess that's it. That's my inspiration. Defects in The Walking Dead. <laughs> yeah, we could devote a whole show to that one. So, um, yes, very interesting perspective there. Uh, Tiffany... Tell us about your book, the Bastille Family Chronicle series. Okay, the Bastille Family Chronicle series is around is set around six siblings. Five of them are surgeons. One of them is a nurse, and I pretty much play up the family dynamics. Uh, although the books are about them as thirty to forty something black professionals with unsuccessful love lives. So they're kind of romancy in the sense that each of them are finding someone, you know, to kind of spend their time with. But it also focuses on the family dynamics. I get in, uh, and yes, I do mirror my own family dynamics and that of others because just because you're in the same family, you share the same bloodline, you don't always get along. And I like to play that up, uh, this sibling doesn't get along with that sibling. This one is closer to that one. And then the whole birth order hierarchy kicks in. So I, I found it pretty fun to write. And actually, the first book in the series, uh, Bastille Family Chronicles Camille, I wrote that during National Novel Writing Month in 2013. <laughs> nice. What what got you into fiction writing? And you also write suspense series under the pen name TMD. So tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Uh, I got in, uh, the stories are intertwined because back in the day, uh, I've written, I, uh, avid reader and I used to write reviews and also served as senior editor for a magazine called QBR, the Black Book Review, which is now only available online. And back then, we're talking the late 90s, I had a literary agent, and she shot my first Sebastian Scott novel, which is the suspense series that I write under the pen name TMD. And uh, much like Thelonious' experiences, I was told by 12 publishing houses that I was not writing what was popular, and their numbers showed that we, meaning black people, didn't read that type of thing. Mm. Now, where they got these numbers from 
numbers from, I don't know. But again, this was during the time when black authors were really getting on the scene. Eric Jerome, Dickie, Terry McMillan. And then they had the black imprint, you know, Harlem Moon, Amistad, uh, and all that. Janet Hill at the time was like the number one ranking black female at Doubleday when it was still just Doubleday before they did all the murders. So it was during that time, uh, unfortunately for me, uh, with regards to a mainstream contract, uh, the popular things were the street fiction, the Terry McMillan, Eric Jerome Dickey type novels, and any type of books set in a church. So, so that just, so I, I put writing to the side for a while and I was in corporate America as a policy analyst. And then uh, I went on, on my own to do editing consulting, and I've done that. I did that for over 13 years. And finally, but I always came back to writing and finally decided that I'm going to do it on my own. So I got serious and wrote The Bastille Family Chronicles of Camille, and then revisited my first Sebastian Scott novel, which I wrote back in 2005, finally, and updated it and published it by blizzard wow that's a great process um we've got a question here on twitter this question is actually directed to theolonius and kevin um so in that order uh baking your noodle wants to know can you tell us what some of your surprises or your difficulties were writing girls in each of your books well this is theolonius for me i had a wealth of knowledge um I live with a house full of, uh, of young ladies. Uh, they all overachievers, they're excellent in academics, they're excellent in sports, and you don't see them portrayed uh, in the science fiction fantasy realm. Um, so I, I guess my biggest challenge was not sharing too much, right? So what I did was I made a, a promulgation of, of different personalities and characters and traits so that they weren't, you know, too close to my home life. Uh, but other than that, um, you know, people are people, right? Um, girls, they want to be, so I guess my biggest, my biggest beef with the sci-fi genre is that they have a hard time, as far as I'm concerned, is making strong, competent women. You got, on one hand, you got, um, fanboys writing Lord the Tomb Raider, who was a sex pot basically walking walk, walk around in lingerie. And then um, on the other end of the spectrum, you might have somebody that's a tomboy but doesn't want to, you know, be beautiful or, or be cute or doesn't think any boys like her, which, you know, reality is more complex than that. I don't see why a, a girl, uh, a female protagonist, can't be, cannot want to be beautiful, want boys like her, and still be strong and kick butt. I mean, to me, that's real life or life as I see it. And so I just made the, the characters uh, as I know them, and they're, they resonated pretty strongly with uh, uh, the few fans. And um, I guess the results speak for myself. I'm pretty happy about it. What about you, Kevin? Well, first I'll respond a little bit to Thelonious there. If, if one of the parallels in your life is that one of your little girls makes billions of dollars day trading, <laughs> Um, I'll, share, I'll share your problems any day of the week. Well, you know it's science fiction, Kev. Come on. All right. All right. I'll give you a point for that. Um, 
I have a lot of female characters in my book. It's not just, you know, Letitia. About half of the kindergartens are kindergartners are female. Um, the um, when they do finally meet up with a group of adults, there's a variety of females there. Um, I. I, I live in a household somewhat like Thelonious in that I'm the only boy here. So I get surrounded by women. Or was when my daughter was young enough to live here with us. Um, I think the thing to remember primarily is, you know, there's some old quote about whenever a woman tries to act like a person, people accuse her of trying to act like a man. Um, and that's what I try to bear in mind, is that female characters are characters first. They're not, you know, limited to worrying about frilly haircuts or, you know, dresses or whether or not they're going to catch the boy. They're real people. And I had to sit and think for each of my characters in terms of, um, you know, who they were. Because like Letitia, um... You know, she surprised me because there's comes to one scene where she's finally, finally gotten the kids away from the school for a little bit, found a safe place for them, and she's putting them to bed. And I'm realizing as I'm writing this scene that this little girl in this little scene would pray because it doesn't matter the fact that I'm not religious at all. This little girl would have been from her environment. She would have been raised as a Pentecostal or a Baptist. And that's what she was going to do. Um, and that actually became a part of the theme of the novel, was her dealing with her religion when she's in an environment that the only conclusion she can come is that God hates her and that God is trying to kill everyone that's left, that he's just missed. Um, and I think that's the main thing, is don't worry so much about whether your characters are male or female. Worry about the pressures that are facing them, the situations they're dealing with, their training, and how you think they're realistically going to react. Your girls are people too. So that's my contribution. Tiffany, I want to get your perspective on this. I mean, you know, as a female writer, do you find that sometimes that you have to um, look at the perspectives of what other women have written? Um, in previous books or novels, or do you find that it's challenging for you to uh, write these kind of roles for a female protagonist or even a male protagonist? Do you have to deal with any kind of challenges, or do you see that it's usually the guys that have more of a challenge in writing female characters than the other way around? At the, it, the men have more challenges writing female characters. Uh, I've noticed over the years just in reading certain characters, uh, female characters, how they're portrayed, and I even had to let an author go because he kept writing what who was supposed to be a very accomplished woman, and kept writing her as some hapless female. Like she would be the type, she would be the female in the horror movie that runs in high heels and trips and ends up getting killed, and that's <laughs> kind of the literary equivalent of how it was, which just irritated me. Um, it also depends on what type of genre you're writing. My protagonists, uh, female, are strong black women, uh, but not, I guess, a human being tends to mistake us bitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but they also are not they're, they don't mind having a romance, but it's not the be-all and end-all. And I've read most of the books that I've read, the female characters do run along a spectrum. Either they're younger and or just maintaining until their quote-unquote Prince Charming comes along. Or they're hard, they're on the opposite spectrum, end of the spectrum, and they're hardened. Not you know, they're so independent to the point that they have like a 30 foot thick concrete wall that's lined in titanium around them that no one can get through. And then they're chasing whatever demons would drink for drugs or what have you. So uh, for men, depending on the role models that they've seen in their lives, that has a large impact on how they write the women in their novels. And it goes both ways. I mean, if, you know, for females, you know, you're around someone who's just kind of not, I can't, what I want to say, I don't know if it's, uh, if it's not safe for work. <laughs> I won't say it on the podcast. <laughs> but, uh, but if, uh, if they are on that level of, uh, not crapness, let me just, to be PC about it, of you're going to write characters that are not full of not crapness. And, if you're surrounded by positive, you know, uplifting specimens of male, that's how you're going to write your people. Mm-hmm. Thelonious, I understand that one of your protagonists are dark-skinned. And why do you think that it's so important to have a dark-skinned protagonist with natural hair? Because I think representation matters. I think one of the most realest and, and blackest moments on TV that I can remember was um, during Shonda Rhimes' joint when Viola Davis' mother was doing her hair in, in the right. kitchen. Yeah, I that moment was so powerful and it gave me the feels because it took it back to my childhood when my mother did my sister's hair in the kitchen, and I'm just like, why did we need a woman of color to bring that to life? And then I thought, who else could do it? So representation matters. And women, and, and I'm going to speak on black women specifically because I live with them and, and they, they raised me uh, single-handedly. Hair, hair is a channel. Uh, and there's a conversation going on with black women that pulls the pros and cons of going natural. And when I was making my protagonist, I was, you always want to make her, you know, women are people do make her human, make her relatable. And making a, a dark standard black woman that's also a superhero, what can make her related than, more relatable than the challenges of dealing with her hair? You know, uh, one of her hairs is blonde hair, blue eyes, and that's the typical standard of beauty that a lot of black women are judged by. And so when I was making my hero journey, she had to find comfort in herself and her beauty and love herself for who she is. And once she was able to get over that hump, then she was able to go on and defeat the bad guy. So it was important for me to have a, a dark-skinned uh, woman uh, with natural hair because representation matters. And before Shonda Rhimes came on the scene, you didn't see a lot of dark-skinned women in powerful roles uh, where they would take charge or, or uh, uh, where they were you know, accomplishing big things. That I was aware of, and you know, somebody quote me if I'm wrong. 
somebody correct me if I'm wrong. So having a, a dark-skinned superhero with the challenges of natural hair, I think offers a unique twisted genre, and it makes it more real to my daughter than uh, people that look like my daughters. And so that's why that was so important to me. I remember um, kind of piggybacking off of this topic. You know, I, I had one of the contributors of Black Girl Nerds write a great piece. Um, this was several uh, months ago, actually a little over a year ago. And the title of the piece was called Why Is It Easier to Find a Vampire Than a Black Person in Young Adult Fiction? <laughs> and um, great title. But her the the crux of the article, which I found to be very compelling, was about the whitewashing that happens, um, or really just sort of uh, the issue of colorism with respect to book covers, that um, there was a particular book cover in her article called Liar, and the protagonist was black female protagonist, but they made her um, black on one cover, and then on the other one, she looks white, Um do you see that that is something that is a challenge um, as an author, uh, seeing book covers representing um, black characters, but they're either whitewashed or there's issues of colorism where dark-skinned characters are made to be lighter-skinned? I, w- I would say yes, and I would still to change my cover because I have a protagonist with an afro, I have a protagonist with an afro cover, and they was like, nobody is going to be related to this cover. I was like, my daughters love this cover. They and so, you know, for you to say that white kids who consume rap music, still got Michael Jordan posters and when this won't be able to relate to this cover, I don't think you're the right person for me. Let me keep it moving. Yeah. But I'll just jump in for a moment here. The publishers aren't a hundred percent wrong. And I guess that's the that's the scariest part. Is I don't know if you follow my ads on Twitter or if you've noticed them. But when I advertise my book, I have three basic characters that I have the license representations for. And one of them represents Letitia. She's a nine-year-old black face staring at you. Um, another one of the images is Rosarita. And she's about a six-year-old Puerto Rican girl. And the next one is Jose, who's a five-year-old, very dark-skinned um, Puerto Rican mix. And I can see when I run ads with those three images in it, I can track the demographics of who responds. And it is, you know, as much as we want to say that, you know, it doesn't matter, you can see that that black face brings in black respondents. And those Puerto Rican faces bring in Hispanic responses. Jose being a darker Puerto Rican brings in a, a better mix of responses from the different ethnic groups. So we might like to think the whole world is so enlightened that it doesn't respond to these changes, but it's not that enlightened. And we need to fight that, but we need to understand that you not only have to fight with the publishers, you kind of have to fight with the public. I would, say this, the, the, I would say this as I made a conscious decision. Uh, to stick with my cover because I'm not, I, I mean, if I can make money, that's great. But that's not what I got into doing. This. I got in this because I had a story in me that I had to get out on paper and that I wanted my daughters representing science fiction and fantasy so they can read books where, uh, so they can read books like Harry Potter, but they get to save the day. 
And so yeah. I might be able to get more sales if I change up my covers. I'm not going to do it because, you know, this is too important to me. Yeah, and, I, and I'm not arguing with you. You know, I have basically in my book, I have one white Caucasian character that, that plays a minor role. And I didn't bring her up to suddenly be the cover of the book because blondes sell. No, I wasn't going to do that. My book balances between Hispanics and black characters. So my covers and my advertising materials balance between those Hispanic and black characters. But I just think it's easy to, it's easy to think of publishers as evil. And what they are is they play it very safe and they're unwilling to take any risks. And that's an evil in and of itself. And I'm in the middle because I don't even use human representations on my covers. I use symbols, which, mm. which, uh, tie into something in the book, which works for me because I just don't even feel like getting into all that and, you know, finding someone of the right shade because I have all shades and fades in my books. So it, plus for me, I get to play with, uh, I like brightly colored covers. So I get to play with color, haha, uh, in a different way. Wow, this is really good. So then, you elect to just use images and symbols as opposed to um, faces when you're writing your books, and you choose the the cover art for your books. Yes. Kevin, I want to ask you, what kind of pushback have you gotten as a white author writing about black and Hispanic characters? Well, I get it. Um, and you know, and when we, when I look at the, you know, the conversations we've already had today, both Tiffany and Thelonious have mentioned, you know, the, the publishers reacting about nobody is interested in these characters. And I got the same thing that, you know, when it, and I think a little bit more because I'm not writing YA than Thelonious did. Um, because if you look at the whole we need diverse books movement, it really seems to have as a foundation that the goal of having diverse characters is for diverse children to have characters they can read about and emulate and grow up to be like. And that's a noble goal. I'm not going to, don't get me wrong, I, I love that. I think it's very important that every child should be able to pick up a book and see that there's people like them being portrayed in a positive light. But my book really isn't intended for children. You know, you would, if you, I, I live in fear that someone's going to give my book to a nine-year-old girl and then I'm going to get the letter about, I gave it to little Sophia and now she's hiding under the bed and she won't come out. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, you know, your book is just that intense. It's that good. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's intended to scare the living hell out of you. That's what it's for. Yeah. Um, um, but I got the feedback both that I should make the characters older because adults didn't want to read about kids and that I should get them out of the Bronx because who could relate to the Bronx? And I'm sitting there going, I think there's a couple million people that live in the Bronx. You know, it's a big neighborhood. A lot of people live there. Um, so basically I wound up that I self-published because Publishers were telling me that the book was unpublishable, that they didn't think that the intersection of children and non-white children for an adult market was something that was going to sell. Um, and I didn't, 
you know, so I was under pressure to make everybody whiter and older. And I had already written the book, and I already enjoyed my book. I mean, most authors do. We enjoy our work. And I wound up, well, let's take an example. Um, we had, you know, Theolonis was talking about the natural hair and such. I have my scene in there with the natural hair because I've got a nine-year-old taking care of a pile of five-year-olds. And that's a great scene, Kevin. If I could, that's a great scene. I love that scene. And one of the kids has a weave. And she's trying to deal with how does she take care of a little five-year-old that's lived her entire life with processed hair and a weave. And now they're living out in the middle of an island in the East River. How is she going to take care of this child? She just cuts it off. But the thing that got me was when I had beta readers reading the novel in the first place, um, a black woman that read it, she loved the scene. She had the same reaction as Delonius did. She chuckled, thought it was a good scene. I had a white woman that got to that point, And, I mean, we're talking a book with Letitia, Jahira, Kiara, Tiara, um, you know, the rest, Malik, Levon, Levar. And she didn't understand the scene because she hadn't realized at that point that the characters were black. And I'm, I nearly cried. I mean, and I finally, as I rewrote the book, I wound up in the first chapter. I, I explicitly identified that, yes, these little girls are black little girls. And it was really amazing to me how strong the, the default white notion is that if you don't write explicitly this is a black person, that your reader might just assume they're white. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. was amazing to me. Um, now I still get every once in a while people that will act like somehow I don't have the right to write about blacks and Hispanics. That being a white man, I shouldn't appropriate their stories. And that, that bothers me a lot because the world has a mix of different people. And all of us need to write about mixes of different people unless it's not appropriate. I don't think if I'm writing a story about rural Minnesota that I'm going to write a story about the one black person in rural Minnesota to balance it out. No. If your story is in rural Minnesota, it's a white place. If your story is in New York, it's a mixed place. Pay attention to what the story is about and who's there and write about those people. And we shouldn't carry so much about who we are. We should worry about researching our characters well enough that we can write about our characters realistically and well. Um, now, that said, and I'll, anyone listening, I'm open to criticism because I understand, you know, if you look at a lot of black exploitation movies or blackish, there's always the one white guy that's funny because he doesn't seem to realize that he's not black. Um, it's easy for me to accidentally be him. So, you know, anyone that's reading my stuff that finds a spot where they feel like I just missed it and it hit flat and wrong, let me know. One of the nice things about being a self-published author is I can put out a revised edition of a book in a moment. So if I've done wrong, talk to me about it and let me know, and I'll fix it. You, interesting point, Kevin. Um, the, some of the pushback about the whole appropriation, and I'm quite sure you understand this, probably comes from there has been a long history of persons who are not black 
or not of color telling the stories of those of color and those are the first things being snatched up. Whereas if we try to tell the story, we're deemed not acceptable or not knowledgeable enough. So I can understand as a author of color where that pushback is coming from. Now, I'm, and you are, but you are also correct, the world is very mixed and increasingly so. So yes, there is room at the table for everyone to have a voice. But I do understand where that pushback is coming from. Yeah. How have your, um, Tiffany, how have your books been received so far? I mean, tell us, first of all, how many books have you published and um, what kind of responses have you gotten from them? Uh, the Bastille 2 are actually on the shelves. The Bastille Family Chronicles, Dominic, will be out this week. Yay! So that will be my third book. And it's actually been received very well. And I will say this, uh, I'm probably jumping ahead of the whole what advice do you have to give the authors thing. Uh, but my demographic is 30 to 40. That is my core demographic. We generally, um, people my age, because I'm 42. People my age, we, most of us don't, most of us don't hang out on Amazon or Goodreads. Uh, it's been hard for me to ask them to write reviews because that's just not something that they have, that's not, you know, on their mental radar. But I've, they've been very well received and I'm selling very well. You wouldn't know it if you went on Amazon or went on good reviews. People would be like, oh, she's only got two reviews. It must not be that good. Far from it. I sell more word of mouth. So uh, an early piece of advice to authors, don't get caught up on numbers or how many star reviews you have on Amazon, especially in light of the fact that there are people, much like they used to buy Twitter followers, people are buying reviews on Amazon. So mm. oh, I was wow. just going to say that. Uh, and I'm actually selling, actually I sell better word of mouth and face-to-face -face than I do on Amazon. I get more money selling directly through my website because the royalties on Amazon are really not much to even keep a light bill on, let alone all the bills for rent. Hmm. Wow. I didn't know that about buying um, reviewers on Amazon. I didn't know that was a thing. That's mm -hmm. very interesting. Um, question on Twitter. This is from Baking Your Noodle, um, and this is for any of you guys to answer. How valuable are beta readers to authorship in order to better refine themes and ideas? Very valuable. I always, 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 I have a dedicated reader uh, actually, we were old writing partners years ago, and he's a poet, but uh, he reads uh, prose as well. And he always eyeballs my book, and he picks up on some very good things. And it helps that he's a writer as well, because he gives me the critique that I need as a writer. You know, this character sounds kind of flat. You know, this phrase, something in this phrase, you know, is too long. You know, things like that. So a beta reader is so I think beta readers and, and editors are invaluable, uh, especially good ones that isn't afraid to give you the, the straight dope. Um, so, and and let me let me add this because uh, uh, early in the podcast, Jamie asked us about our experiences with blog ads. And let me say this, and Jamie knows this is a true story. So, um, I 
I did the blog ad on blackgirlsnerds.com. Like a week later, uh, Gina Bicewood, who did Love and Basketball and Beyond the Light, tweeted that she had my book. Isn't that a true story, Jamie? Yeah, that so, happened. So uh, any authors out there, anybody that's on anything, if, if you're in the, uh, a Twitterverse and you're in the sci-fi fandom or whatever, like we show, uh, show Jamie some love in her blog ad. It helped me out, and I'm sure it helped you out too. Yeah, appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. Um, Kevin, did you, you said you'd mentioned too that you had some experience with beta readers. Do you find that that's valuable as well? I think it's the more important, the further away you are from your own territory. You know, if I was writing books about 55-year-old white guys that worked in an office, um, I'd feel very comfortable doing it without a beta reader. Um, the farther I get from that notion either in background or sex or ethnicity, the more I have to rely on people that do belong to the group I'm writing about to give me some feedback about where I've gone wrong and where I've gone right. What tips, and this is for each of you, so uh, we'll go in this order. I'll start with Tiffany, Theolonius, and then Kevin. What tips can you provide to budding writers that want to break into publishing and start selling their own novels? First of all, write. Hmm. Uh, I don't care if you write two hours before you go to work, two hours after the kids go to bed, you know, on the weekend, on, on the train, whatever. First, you need to write. Uh, technology makes it extremely easy now. Everyone, most people have a smartphone. Excuse me, they have apps for whatever documents, whether it's a Google Docs or a thing Microsoft has one, or you can go on any app store and find a word. You know, Microsoft knockoff. Uh, you can so you can write. You know, while you're in route, you can also you know voice record whatever you want to say and then transcribe it later. There are multitudes of ways to get your story down, even if you're not sitting directly in front of a computer. Second of all, you need to determine whether you want to self-publish or go traditional because the two are slightly different. And I saw, so yeah, I'm on I'm on Twitter, uh, and I see someone asked about the real differences between self-publishing and publishing houses. If you're going the self-published route, well, that's a matter of finding a platform through which you want to publish, where there's CreateSpace, which is owned by Amazon, if they own so many things, or Lulu, which is getting some pushback, uh, Arthur House, which is whack, and all that. Uh, if you're going the traditional route, you have to have a literary agent. Uh, go to, what is the... Uh, Association, something of art, or artist representative, something, um, agent representative. I forget the acronym, but there is a listing of legitimate literary agents because most major publishing houses will not accept unsolicited manuscripts. They'll end up in a slush pile and it may be like 15 years, if ever, that somebody unearths your book. So you have, so if you're going to do that, your, your book has to be tight. Your synopsis has to be tight. You have to try and find an agent and hope that they will sell it. Theolonius? Uh, well, it, again, I agree with Tiffany. It depends on what direction you want to go. I, I will say this, since my experience is with self-publishing, if you are with self-publishing, you, or if you're going to go that route, you definitely need some very good beta readers and some very good editors. Uh, you need to start making friends now uh, that are in the industry, uh, whether they're other self-published writers or bloggers or whatever. 
because there's two separate skill sets you need to have. First of all, you need to be a good writer, and mm -hmm. that's, that's like what Tiffany says, writing every day and rewriting and then rewriting and rewriting. Give it to your beta reader, get their feedback, rewrite some more. After you think what you have is a, uh, a good manuscript and you publish it, you're going to need a separate skill set to market it, which is mm -hmm. totally different than writing. And marketing is, you know, you got to make friends, you got to pay nice, especially when it's self publisher right? Uh, exchanging reviews, networking with other writers, networking with uh, uh, blog sites like Black Girl Nerd, uh, getting on Goodreads, getting on Amazon. It, it's tiring, and it's, it's a full-time job, and you got to be there to win it because, uh, you know, there's there's really no halfway to go about it. You're not going to, I mean, the time for Amanda Hawking is over. Uh, you got to be on that grind 24/7, and you know you got to get your name out there. But you also got to have a quality product that people yeah. want to read. And so there's a lot that goes into all that. And you know, don't be scared. Jump into it. Yep. And get an editor. Lord have mercy if I hear one more person say, "Oh, I can. Ed I got my cousin who got all A's." And no, no. And she yeah. Don't edit my book. Oh, Lord no. Have mercy. Yeah. No. Editing I, I, is a lot more than grammar and punctuation. People, I've done this 13 years. I'm certified. I've been in publishing for roughly that long on and off. I know what I speak. Do not rely on your homies unless they know what they're doing. <laughs> Don't, 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 don't go to Pookie. Don't, do don't let Pookie do it. Cause, you and, know. Thank, thank you. And I know there are books out there saying edit yourself. And mm -mm. Anyway. I can't do it. I, I, I'm like, I think come up I, off the cash. Yeah. I, and it, I, it's I, expensive, but it's worth it. I totally agree with you. I mean, I'm, I'm not a published author, but I'm also a writer and I create content on a blog. And I need a second pair of eyes to look over my copy. I am the worst copy editor ever. <laughs> so I'm always finding mistakes um, when I go back to reading blog posts that I've written a year ago or two years ago. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, why didn't I catch that? So I totally agree with you. You should definitely have a second pair of eyes looking over your, your words and your text. Preferably, you should definitely have someone that has copy editing experience um, right. I, I went out and sought people that have copy editing experience to um, do copy editing for BGN. So I encourage any author out there to do that because it's easy to miss things. And even you could be the best writer in the world, just a little mispunctuation, you know, pronouncing a word wrong or using a word more than once. It can really be jarring um, as a reader. And, you know, it, Unfortunately, an oversight like that doesn't look too well. Um, it doesn't reflect well um, on your work as an author. So, yeah, I, I totally agree with that sentiment. And when you're getting an editor, make sure they are versed in diverse types of writing. Because you don't want to be writing about Lucy cigarettes. And y'all you know y'all from the hood. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Any of y'all Lucy cigarettes and having an editor who has not a clue come through and redline it and spell L-U-C-Y, and you're sitting there like, seriously? Well, see, yeah. I had that problem. I had to get a, another editor <laughs> because uh, the, the demographic I was writing about, they, not everybody was familiar with, and I was told I need to change the language so that people could, uh, uh, you know, relay or understand what it is. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. So. 
What, um, how do you deal with writer's block? Uh, that, that's been sort of the bane of my existence, <laughs> um, as a writer is, is writer's block. So how do you deal with it and what keeps you going? Yeah. <laughs> um, I will... Go ahead, Silani. Well, I think that was actually me going. Yeah, I, yeah. I, try, I try to go on multiple books at the same time because what I find is if I'm stuck at a plot point in one story, that one of my other stories can still flow. And that way, you know, basically I try not to hit myself over the head with a frying pan. You know, I just, what working today is what works today and what'll work tomorrow. It'll be something else. And I try to keep enough things going that something flows. Um, I would say this. I, I have like a full time job. I have a house full of girls that have activities. I can't afford to have a uh, writer's block. So if the creative juices aren't flowing, I just write crap and I know it's crap. Cause I could fix bad writing. I can't fix no writing. So if the creative juices are not flowing, I write anyway. And I, I know it's bad. And I know like, oh my God, this is like the worst I've ever written. But you know what? I go back the next day. I'm able to fix that because I can glean something from it. Yeah. So as far as me, uh, uh, a writer's block, I don't get that. Me, I, I don't have a lot of hours in the day where I could devote to writing. And so when I do, I got to be productive. So I, I write, and sometimes, you know, the, I, I can feel it. I'm like, oh, my God, this is it's really flowing. And some days I'm just like, ah, I can't think of anything. But I write anyway, you know. And then the next day I might throw 50% of that away, but I could always give me something of value from it, and that was uh, well worth it. So. Okay, perhaps I'm just a bad example, but I don't write every day. I, uh, I will write. I go on binges. I'll write until I run out of steam and then I might turn it over in my head and then I'll go on another binge write. Mm. But to get rid of writer's block, I read. Sometimes it's just a mental fatigue issue and my mind just can't, it's just not in a, in a space to create. And so I read. Uh, I also spend too much time on Twitter because I can always find something to live tweet. Thank you, <laughs> Black Girl Nerd. <laughs> And, and and Geek Soul Brother on Saturday Night Sci-Fi. Yes, I see. Right. Uh, Bringing so out I can the always, of everybody. Yep. So I find that um, I play a lot of Bejeweled Blitz and Words with Friends. And I actually, and, but when I need, but I agree with Thelonious, you know, you really can't afford, especially if you're a self-published author, you can't afford to not write or not publish. Well, we don't have nice, cushy advances to fall back upon. And for me, this is my career. So I don't have a corporate job. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> but I don't have a corporate job that I have to, you know, you know, my bi-weekly paycheck to fall back upon. So one of the things I do is I dig in the crate. I find things that I may have started years ago. Maybe only have five pages, ten pages, twenty pages. And I go back and revisit that. And I recently unearthed, I was looking for something else, and found a notebook. Because uh, don't forget, I, I'm, a, I'm of an age where I remember where there was no email. So I found a little notebook that I got from CVS, a little spiral notebook, and I jotted down various story ideas as they came to me. So I go back to that and kind of play with it and write something new. National Novel Writing Month has been very helpful because I'll, I use it as a test space. 
to see if any of those ideas can come to a full book fruition. And I also set a goal for myself every year. I tell myself, okay, I'm going to put out four books this year. So that hold, that helps hold me myself accountable because if I'm not reaching that goal, then obviously there's a problem. So I have to push myself to make sure that I get X amount of books out in a year because that's what I said I would do. Nice. Well, we're gearing up towards the end of the show, so I want each of you guys to answer this question. Uh, what current and or future projects are you working on? Uh, as I said, the Bastille Family Chronicles Dominic comes out this week, and the follow, uh, the next installment will probably be out around June or July, followed by the next Sebastian Scott novel. So that will be three books I've put out of the four that I plan to do this year. And I am torn between which of the, which of two manuscripts that are half finished that I will put out in the fall. Okay. Well, for me, the one that's closest to fruition is called Hunts Point Apocalypse. And if you read my first novel, one of the points that shows up in that is the neighborhood of Hunts Point, which survives basically because the residents decide that the zombie apocalypse is indeed a white plot to wipe them out. <laughs> and and they basically, when FEMA comes to help, they scare them away and say, get the hell out of here, we don't need it. So when FEMA screws up, Hunts Point is one of the few places it survives. Um, and when I started that, it was just like a page at nearly black, well, morbid humor. Black humor can get misunderstood in this context. Morbid humor. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, in, in my first book. And I decided to expand it into a novel. And what was strange to me when I first started it, I thought it would be hard to make the characters sympathetic. And then since then, we've had North Charleston, we've had Baltimore. We've had more of that crap. And mm -hmm. it's becoming easier and easier to get into the flow that, you know, maybe that actually is what the people there would decide. And so it's turning into a book. I enjoy it. Uh, well, for me, um, my second book is coming out here. I got it back from the beta readers. I'm going to rewrite. I'm going to finish a trilogy this time. And then I got a, another series. Uh, plan, which is kind of going to be like uh, um, X-Files meets uh, The Wire. I've always been a fan of that kind of anti-hero and what I'm trying to do is go like uh, a universe of you know, diverse superhero character types so down the road they could, you know, team up and face the existential threat. So after my Flash novel The Wire meets X-Files or whatever I want to call it at that point, I'm working on a, uh, a novel of uh, Super women, uh, based on Amazon mythology. Um, I'm drawing a lot of, a lot of, uh, lore from Vikings as far as shield maidens that I've been doing research on as far as Vikings, how they fought, some of the land they conquered. And, uh, to me, it's going to be like, you know, Wonder Woman, you know, done right. Cause, uh, I'm tired of, uh, DC doing what they're doing. So, um, I want to get on that and, and what I'm doing is just creating a, a universe of very diverse characters. And they're going to team up with something big down the road. 
but the Parker Girls are where my heart is. They're my first trilogy. Uh, my daughters love them, and I'm never going to stray too far from that. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so, so much for being on the show. Um, each of you have done some amazing work with your novels, and obviously you are huge supporters of Black Girl Nerds. Um, Kevin has contributed content to the site. Tiffany has contributed content to the site. Um, and Theolonius uh, has been a supporter with Blurred Book Club. So thank you all for, for being such huge advocates for this space as well. Um, I think we are wrapping up now. And next week we have Christopher Love. He's a science fiction content creator. He's got his own production company called Heroes Like Me Entertainment. And he's going to come and chat with us about being, uh, again, we're, we're doing independent content creators, um, writing scripts for various uh, science fiction shows, and really distributing content that um, speak to people of color. Uh, so tune in next week, Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And again, thank you guys for coming on tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thank you. This was great. Awesome. All right, guys. Have a good night. Bye. You too. Bye. Bye. Finally, I'm finally free.